0: Hello and thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast from Prism Insurance Agency. As you know, we put in a ton of time and effort to make each of our shows as valuable as we can. If you find the information useful, please share this podcast with a friend by emailing it to them or sharing it on the social media site of your choice. Does the thought of an IRS audit keep you awake at night? Do you avoid taking legitimate deductions for fear that it might trigger an audit? Well, joining us today is Mike Villardi, a retired IRS criminal investigator of 22 years, that now has decided to go into private practice as an enrolled agent. Mike is going to share with us things you certainly shouldn't be doing, but also put some light on the fact that legitimate deductions are just that legitimate. And you don't necessarily need to fear the IRS auditor as long as you follow some of the helpful tips he's going to share with us today. Welcome, Michael. Thank you for having me on the show. Hey, we got to start out with, after serving the IRS for 22 years, what prompted you to go into private practice, and now instead of representing the IRS, you're representing people who are dealing with the IRS?
1: There were two reasons for that. Number one, when I initially took the position as special agent with the IRS, one of the reasons I did it was for the early retirement. You could retire with 20 years of experience and being 50 years of age, so I wanted to get out while I was young. I was commuting to Manhattan, which was about two and a half hours from my house. So that kinda took its toll, so I said you'd let me get out while the getting's good and I did. And secondly what happened was I was offered a job down in Fort Lauderdale working for a law firm at the Protection Law Center. And I started their tax division starting last year in July. And I worked there for a couple of months and they ran into financial problems. And I figured it made a lot of sense since I've already done and I was able to help a lot of people to start my own firm. And I did. I started Mike Velarde, LLC. We have a website, which is Mike, M-I-K-E, Velarde, dot com. We have a lot of useful information there. We also have an 800 number, which is 888 And one of the things I've always enjoyed doing was really helping people since I knew the IRS so well from working there for twenty two years, this gave me that opportunity. And it's really worked out great. I mean one guy I saved them thirty thousand, another woman ninety. So I was able to save people money, help them out of their situation. All around, it's really worked out very
2: well. Well, I'm sure having the inside working knowledge of how things operate definitely gives you an edge up in helping the consumer. And I know we're just about putting tax season behind us for those who, of course, filed on time, and there's plenty of extenders out there. But let's talk about how to avoid first an IRS audit or survive one if you're already in one. First,
1: avoiding the audit. The IRS has a computer system. It's called the EFTA system. It stands for the Electronic Fraud Detection System. It's set up to take notice of anybody who doesn't report a W-2 or a 1099. So if you don't report all your income, you're going to get flagged. So number one is to report all your income. Secondly, it takes a model, and it looks at like what the average return should be like. And if you deviate too much from that model, you're going to draw attention to yourself. So for example, I'll give you a real-life example, but I'll change the names and I'll change the numbers. A couple of years ago, there was a guy named Mr. Goldberg. Mr. Goldberg made $100,000. But on his Schedule A, he took a $60,000 deduction for charitable contributions, so 60% of his income. So he was able to produce the check showing that he paid $60,000 to the Roman Catholic Church, his local Roman Catholic Church. And of course, the IRS thought that was really weird. Why would a Jewish guy give $60,000 to the Catholic Church? So they went to the Catholic Church to investigate. They knocked on the door of the priest. And they asked Father Mulholland, Who's Mr. Goldberg? Why is he such a big contributor to your church? And the priest scratched his head and scratched his head. And finally he says, Oh yeah, Stanley Goldberg, the guy that buys the change. The guy would come in every week, write a check to the church for the change, and then take it as a charitable contribution. Now what had happened was, because it was such a large amount, it came to the attention of the IRS. If he was reasonable, and he wrote a $10,000 check, They never would have looked at him. But because he got greedy, he then subsequently got caught. And because none of it was, in fact, a charitable contribution, it was just an exchange of money, him writing a check for them, giving them all the change everything
2: was thrown out and they got taxed from the whole thing. What do they say, Mike? Pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. It's just sad that examples like that, of course, which are blatant and tend to abuse the system is, you know, sometimes sets a tone for I would imagine what the IRS does in their computers to kind of catch these things. This one is obviously blatant. And that's why what you did in your prior career was essential because truly you're making sure that the Taxpayers are treated fairly and that those who should be paying their fair share should, and this guy was definitely over the line.
1: Right, and what happens is, and I've seen it time and time again, people think they're getting away with something the first time, they'll do it a second time, they do it a third time. And all the IRS is doing is letting you create your own pattern so you cannot go back and say, you know what, it was a mistake. I only did it once.
0: So, Mike, let's talk about some of the high-risk areas. Where are people at most risk for an audit or a problem?
1: Well, there are a couple areas. When I was with the IRS, I was the QRP, RPP coordinator. And what that meant is I was looking at bad tax preparers and tax return schemes. Now, number one, if you have a bad preparer, some tax preparers and the IRS has taken action this year in particular to stop that because it was rampant. In prior years, I mean, we would assign anywhere between, well, well, I'd assign a good number of cases to the field just on bad tax preparers because tax preparers who want business and what they do is they'd, up deductions to get their clients bigger refunds and then their clients would go tell their friends and they would bring them more and more business and the IRS would allow that for a period of time just to establish again a pattern and then they'd come in and they'd file criminal charges against the preparer and they would audit every single return of the ones that he prepared so number one make sure you got a decent preparer and he's not doing anything dishonest. number two as i gave you an example of the goldberg case if your itemized deductions are too high relative to your income, that would be a red flag. Now, of course, in certain cases where you might have had a major medical situation where you spend fifty, a $100,000 to have an operation and your medical expenses become excessive, even though you might get looked at and you could document and improve it, it wouldn't be an issue. But they do look at what the percentage of itemized deductions that's being taken compared to your income.
2: And compared to the average taxpayer that's filing, for example? Because I know some of the tax software I've seen actually shows you on the return red flag areas as how you compare right. nationally. So the system is just watching for these spikes, and of course, that's where the inquiry might come from.
1: Right. And remember, there's several ways that they can inquire. One is through correspondence. you receive a letter in the mail. You have 30 days to answer the letter and give them the backup they want. Or secondly, they'll call you down for a face-to-face audit.
2: And I think what we'll do is let's go through kind of the detail of those. But first, I'm just curious of a couple other high-risk areas. For example, we've talked about deductions so far. And the first example of Mr. Goldberg, of course, charitable deductions. Your second example was medical expenses. But what about just high-income earners? A lot of people think, well, just because I make more money, I'm typically going to be more of a target. So address that.
1: That's a yes and no because it's going to depend on, like I said, they're going to look at certain things. Are all your W-2s and 1099s there? If there are, that's fine. Your Schedule A, your itemized deductions. With high-income returns, they're going to look at other schedules, the Schedule E, the Schedule D, the expenses that are being taken against it. For instance, if you earn most of your money as a high-income person, you make a million dollars, and it's all Schedule D, well, you're going to get the 15% tax rate, and you're probably not going to be much of a target. So it really depends on what you put on the return. now of course, when you do make a lot of money, it makes a lot more sense for the IRS to take a look because they're not gonna collect any additional tax from a guy that's making twenty thousand dollars a year. Sure. if you do an audit on someone that's made twenty thousand, someone that made twenty million, you're gonna find a lot more with the guy that made the twenty million than the guy that made the twenty thousand.
2: It's worth the effort, right?
1: Yeah, it's just not worth an IRS agent's time to investigate a twenty thousand dollar return unless, the IRS knows that $20,000 was not the your income. They really earned 120000 sure. and it just didn't land on the tax return.
2: What about the old adage that the odds of being struck by lightning is astronomical, but of course, if that is, the odds of being struck twice is even higher. Well, what about that as far as an IRS audit? If I've been audited, let's say before, and found a deficiency, what's the likelihood that they'll continue to want to touch base with me once in a while?
1: Well, actually, they'll probably keep track
2: of you. Yeah. So you kind of got a prior record now. <laughs>
1: yeah, kind of in a sense, it's true. But let me just throw this out there also. 2009, President Obama gave the IRS an extra $640 million with the intent of doubling the audit rate. And to some degree, he was successful with that. The money went to hire new auditors, and they also were able to up the correspondence audit rate quite a bit. So people who had never gotten pulled before were all of a sudden getting looked at,
2: you know. Yeah. Well, I, I can definitely tell you, working with an accounting firm here just post-tax season, there definitely seems to be a lot more inquiries lately yes. than in the past. So obviously that yes. budget went to work and hired, exactly. from what we've heard, thousands of additional auditors. Yes, that's
1: what happened. Now, of course, the IRS is being forced to cut back a bit because of the economy. So I guess everybody's feeling the squeeze. But that being said, once you put those people in place problem is you got to fund them now every year until they retire. Right. <laughs> okay. And you created just a bigger machine. And the IRS has been tasked with also with this Obamacare bill. So in 2014, they're going to start issuing $750 bills to anyone that doesn't have health insurance.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then it's going to be their job to collect that money.
2: Yeah, because there's been an argument right now with the Supreme Court. Is it a tax? Is it not a tax? Who enforces it? Well, clearly it sounds like it's in the IRS's lap.
1: Right. And that's the way it's going to be collected. Now, what I understand about that is there'll be no penalties. There'll be no interest attached to it. It'll be strictly a $750 bill that the IRS will be responsible for collecting. So that means that they're going to have to grow the IRS to some degree because they're not going to be able to handle that with the current employment. They're busy enough. Right now, the IRS is getting absolutely swamped with identity theft. They're having to pull people from all over to handle this identity theft crisis that's currently going on.
2: Yeah, everybody's filing on other people's socials to get refunds, correct?
1: And, of course, President Obama made it much worse by requiring everyone to file 1099s on people that make over $600. Right. So now he's saying, okay, listen, you got to get their Social Security, and, and then we have this identity theft. So it's compounding the problem. It's really compounding the problem. It's like you're damned if you do, damned if you don't type of situation. So it makes it very difficult going forward.
2: Mike, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, let's shift gears back to the point you made about two different types of audits, one face-to-face and one correspondence. And I'd love to drill down on that because what that will help us understand is how to be better prepared and potentially then avoid the potential for an audit. So please stay tuned.
3: This copyrighted program and its contents is given with the understanding that neither the hosts, guests, nor station render legal, medical, accounting, tax, or other professional advice. The information and opinions expressed here are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendation for any individual situation or security. For specific assistance, you should seek the services of a competent professional. To learn about a specific investment option, ask your Real Wealth Advisor for a prospectus. Please read the prospectus carefully about the fees, expenses, and risks before investing. Real Wealth Advisors offer security. Securities and Investment Advisory Services through Woodbury Financial Services, Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, and Registered Investment Advisor, PO Box 64284, St. Paul, Minnesota 55164. Real Wealth Advisors and Woodbury Financial Services, Incorporated are not affiliated entities. This is Real Wealth Weekly on the Real Wealth Advisor Network. conversation with your child is like putting money in the bank. For example, every time you ask your child, So, how was your day? You've just added to your conversation trust account. And when you say to your child, Good job, sir, you get double deposits. And the more you ask, the more you put away. And it's good advice to... <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's good advice to have... Stop that. And it's good advice to have little chats with your child as often as you can. Thank you. Because someday, when they're teenagers, it may pay off big dividends.
2: Dad, can I ask you something?
3: Give your family everything. Give them your time.
2: Thanks, Dad. I think you're right. Welcome back as we continue our conversation today with Michael Velarde, who's a retired IRS special investigator and now has gone to private practice with Mike Velarde, LLC, and counseling people on how to be better prepared for an audit or hopefully even avoiding it. So before the break, you mentioned that there are two predominant types of audits, the first one being the face-to-face audit where you're actually called to come in or for them to come to you and sit across the table and respond to their inquiries. So kind of walk us through what to expect in that environment and how to be better prepared for it.
1: Yes. For a face-to-face audit, it's going to have to be usually triggered by something, whether it be, like I said, if you had a bad preparer, that would trigger it, or if there's a large amount of deductions on your return that might be questionable to the revenue officer looking it over before they make the decision to contact you. Now, when you come in for that, they're going to require documentation, receipts, And receipts aren't necessarily enough. As I mentioned with the case of Mr. Goldberg, who, by the way, is a fictitious name, he had the receipts, he had the checks. He could show the checks that he wrote to the Catholic Church. But even though he wrote those checks, they weren't for the intended purpose. So you need to document not only have the receipt for what it was, so let's say you go out to dinner. But you need to say, who was at the dinner? What was the business purpose for the dinner? Ideally, if you keep a journal, like a daily journal, and you can note that in your journal, that helps. Because if you go back to that and say, look, I took Bob Myers out to dinner, and we talked about marketing my new product, and here it is in my journal. Here it is on the back of the receipt. The IRS really won't owe you with that.
2: I think there's a common misconception that if I just have the receipt, I can show that I've proved that I've spent the money. Well, it's not spending the money, it's what did you spend it on.
1: That's correct, right. you got to document what's the business purpose, what it's for. I mean, what I do uh, on a monthly basis, I keep an envelope in the car, I keep all my receipts. If I gas up and I'm going to see a client, I put the name of the client on the receipt. So now they know I spent the money, but I spent it because I'm going to see such and such a client.
2: Well, and again, we've kind of talked about the deduction side of things, but at the same token, you need to be prepared also to show your income activity. So you're going to have to show that flow of income coming in, and that has to, of course, match what you reported on the tax return and ultimately potentially deposits to your bank accounts, correct?
1: Yes, absolutely. I they will look at the bank accounts to make sure that you are reporting all your income. You know, just because something went into your bank accounts doesn't necessarily mean that it was income, but the IRS will make you
2: justify it. Yeah, you know? I can think of a client recently, Mike, that had actually business income coming in, but a family member made a gift of under 13000 and could not prove that it wasn't earned income. And the IRS basically said, well, we have to consider this income then if you can't prove it was a gift.
1: Yeah, that's what they'll do, right? Unfortunately, put the onus on you.
2: That's why you got to have your ducks in a row and be prepared. So let's transition to that correspondence audit. So face-to-face, of course, it's one or two visits, potentially. They might spend quite a bit of time on site. Do you recommend to go to them or have them come to you? I think I'd
1: rather go to them. Because whether you have them into your business or have them into your home, they might notice things or see things that you don't
2: want them to notice. Uh, Simple point. And I think that's the counsel I've always been told. And so I just wanted people to hear that, that if you have the opportunity to show up on their turf, better to bring your documents and records with you. And of course, I've also been told by many accountants, if you do have a CPA or someone or an enrolled agent like yourself, prepare the return, have them appear for you on your behalf and don't necessarily be there yourself. Right. And you always
1: want a professional that's going to represent you at that audit, if possible.
2: Well, and of course, if you're not certain on something, at least the professional can say, I'll have to get back to my client and they don't have to kind of pin you down right there face-to-face because it can be a scary situation and you don't want to volunteer something unnecessarily. Absolutely. Let's go to that correspondence audit. So in this case, now I'm getting a letter. The letter is saying to me, provide all this documentation, which of course I first have to comply with that, and I'm sure there's typically a deadline. Walk us through the ins and outs of the correspondence audit.
1: Okay, what happens with a correspondence audit is this.
2: The IRS
1: is going to see something on the return. It's going to be a trigger. You're going to get the trigger, whether it's an excess itemized deduction or something along those lines. It triggers a computer. And they're going to generate a notice saying, hey, please substantiate the $40,000 you took in contributions on your schedule itemized, you know, your Schedule A for 2010. And they're going to ask you to simply correspond by sending the receipts to back up the deduction.
2: What area should we be careful there? Because I'm sure if they're asking you for the receipts, you may want to be careful sending them the original.
1: I would absolutely. Even though they want the originals, I have clients that had sent the originals and they actually lost them.
2: Now you're in trouble because the burden of proof again is back on you?
1: Exactly right. I would send copies. If that's not good enough for them, say, listen. Set up an appointment, I'll bring the originals down to the field office. You can look at them.
2: And I'm taking them with me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I'm not
1: because, you know, it goes to a service center, it gets processed, it goes through a million people, things get lost, things happen. And as a result, you're the one holding the bag at the end of the day. If you lose
2: your originals, of
1: course you have to have copies of everything. I mean, it really puts a lot of onus on the taxpayer.
2: It really does. Right. And you also should make a record of what you've provided them already, because ultimately, after both of these processes, it still may turn out that you have to take it to the next level, which means maybe you just don't settle it by mail or face to face. Is there either one that has more average success for the taxpayer? Is the face to face more desirable or the correspondence, which I would imagine the correspondence probably takes longer?
1: The correspondence is real simple. I mean, they give you this 30-day notice. They said, send me these records. You send the records. They look at them. They'll give it to you. You don't have the records. You don't reply. They'll then adjust your taxes, send you a bill for the taxes, the interest, and penalties. All those three combined. So then you'd have to appeal it beyond that. The biggest mistake that taxpayers make is they don't comply with the IRS on a timely basis. That's the biggest mistake. That's the biggest problem. And not responding to the IRS gives them the green light to just go after you very aggressively.
2: Well, they can just assume it's income then, and basically, if you're not replying, they're just going to calculate the tax and penalty and interest and make you take it from there.
1: Yeah, right. You're going to get the bill, and then right after the bill, they're going to give you 30 days to pay it. If you don't pay it, you're going to have the bank levies, the wage garnishments. You'll start seeing all that stuff. Well, aggressively.
2: Yeah, and obviously at that point you've missed your opportunity. Right. As we're going through
0: this, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are thinking this is pretty daunting. And I know as financial advisors, a lot of times in sitting down with clients and we're talking about the different advantages of different types of investments and things like that and deductions and talking to clients about taking what legitimately they can take. And I think a lot of clients are so worried about an audit They think that any legitimate deduction might raise a red flag that they actually probably pay more than their fair share, and they don't take advantage of deductions that they rightfully can take. What advice do you give to those folks?
1: I would say when I work for them, I probably overpaid the IRS myself to some degree, but it's always different when you're an employee because you know you're getting looked at. But I would say if you can back it up, take the deduction, why cheat yourself? If it's legitimate, why cheat yourself if you have the documentation There are a lot of CPAs, a lot of accountants that are kind of afraid of the IRS. The IRS is a big unknown, you know what I'm saying? But the reality is there's no reason for you to have to overpay if you could substantiate what you did.
2: I think that's the key point. As long as you're comfortable that it's truly for, let's say, business purpose or, of course, charitable, whatever the deduction is for, if you can back it up with the proper documentation, but make sure that you have it up front. Because what I've experienced with clients is a lot of times these inquiries come up two to three years after the event because the IRS is catching up like everybody else. It's hard for people to go back and recollect and reconstruct things from two to three years ago.
1: Yeah, just so you know, there is a three-year civil statute of limitations and a six-year criminal one. Let me just tell you how they calculate the time. It's from the time that the return is
2: filed. So if you extend it, of course, it's three years from that extension. That's correct, exactly.
1: And then there's a six-year statute of limitation on the criminal side of it. And then after 10 years, the IRS purges all their records.
0: So it's important for people to know the difference between tax avoidance and tax evasion is about 20 (laughs) years, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Tax avoidance is legal, tax evasion is not a lot of it has to do with the intent the pattern There's certain elements that will make
2: it criminal. Yeah, well, evasion comes with supervised government housing, I believe. (laughs) (laughs) But I think your meals are included. Free health. I think you've helped put a perspective here because this is not something to be afraid of. I mean, we all have to pay our fair share, but at the same token, surround yourself with professionals, whether that's your tax professional, your attorney, your financial advisor through life, and once in a while still have to maybe tap into a specialist like yourself if you find yourself kind of in trouble so appreciate your counsel today and your guidance for listeners today as far as being properly prepared sounds like a common theme document 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 yeah. and keep your records in good order
1: that's correct and if you do that you'll be okay
2: And with your statute of limitations you've mentioned, again, two years ago is hard to remember if you keep things organized for those three-year blocks of time. Unless, of course, like you said, it's criminal, six years, at least you're protecting yourself. Because it has at least been common to me that most people's inquiries come nearer that two- or three-year time period when enough time has elapsed that sometimes things are forgettable.
1: That's true. And if they need a professional, they could call me at 888-873-8825. Or go to my website, which is Mike, M-I-K-E, Velarde, V-I-L-A-R-D-I-E-A, which stands for enrolledagent.com. That's EA dot And we'll be happy to help you.
2: Excellent, Mike. Well, thanks for joining us today, enlightening our listeners, and transitioning from 22 years of service from the federal government now to the private side and private sector and helping people really understand how it works on the inside. Thanks again for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Thanks for joining us this week. And tune in again next week as we explore another phase of the Real Wealth process. And remember, if anything you heard in today's show you'd like to get more information about, contact your Real Wealth advisor. Also, if you feel that any of this information would be helpful to a friend or family member,
3: Just click the Forward to a Friend button. This copyrighted program and its contents is given with the understanding that neither the hosts, guests, nor station render legal, medical, accounting, tax, or other professional advice. The information and opinions expressed here are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendation for any individual situation or security. For specific assistance, you should seek the services of a competent professional. To learn about a specific investment option, ask your real wealth advisor for a prospectus. Please read the prospectus carefully about the fees, expenses, and risks. Before investing, Real Wealth Advisors offer securities and investment advisory services through Woodbury Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, and registered investment advisor, PO Box 64284, St. Paul, Minnesota 55164. Real Wealth Advisors and Woodbury Financial Services Incorporated are not affiliated entities. This is Real Wealth Weekly on the Real Wealth Advisor Network. Thank you so
0: much for tuning in to this
3: week's podcast from Prism Insurance Agency. We've got additional information
0: and links in our show notes, which you can click on to learn more. If you have any questions about any of the topics covered or would like to learn more, you can go to our website, www.myprisminsurance.com. You can reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter. Call us at 951-243-2800 or email me directly at prob at myprisminsurance.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in, and have a wonderful week.